Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Hello! Welcome to Drunk Church. My name is Aurora Laybourne, and I am a theory hoe working on fucking my way through the ivory tower. Love that for you. And I am <laughs> Zima B. Concordia. I am a writer that is really into body horror, like both written and actually real life physical. <laughs> and yeah, welcome to Drunk Church. So where liberal feminists work on closing the pleasure gap, you're working on closing the gap between theory and praxis on all that body horror. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on our fourth episode dedicated to the exciting polemic hatred of sex by Oliver Davis and Tim Dean. Excellent. So we've been working through it pretty systematically, but also lingering in the gray areas, haunting the text I guess. Um, and so previously, we looked really closely at the degentralization of sexuality and connected it with work that we had unpacked from George Bataille on eroticism. We also talked a lot about children and about the ways in which liberal feminism ends up mobilizing a carceral logic through calls to protect the children, through calls to attend to victims' needs. So these good intentions end up being reappropriated and government (laughs) um, end up being reappropriated through a process of governmentality, through a mobilization of the administrative grotesque, if you want to follow Foucault, and I think also Dean Spade's excellent work on administrative violence. Can you just explain the administrative grotesque real quick? Oh, of course. So Foucault and his lectures that have been published under the title Abnormal mobilizes these two terms. So one is the administrative grotesque and the other is vile sovereignty. And it's just in a handful of pages, but the administrative grotesque names the particularly incipient kind of bureaucratic violence that is a result of people just following rules and doing their job and just being cogs in the machine. But it's more than just that. It's that the systems that were built to help or to perform certain tasks actually do exactly the opposite of what they were intended. But in doing the opposite, they're reifying a kind of structural norm or they're reifying a system of power within which we're all in place and it's through a mindless unthinking participation so it ends up that these structures are doing exactly what they're supposed to do and that's not work but we're telling ourselves that they're working or we're telling ourselves that we're not actually complicit in their violence so it's this term that's really rife for application and for fleshing out so I just love this term that's the administrative grotesque. Vile sovereignty is, speaks to how a kind of bumbleiness, <laughs> a kind of grossness, a vileness is what shores up sovereign power. So what makes Trump so powerful isn't just the station that he's in. It's also the kind of fuck you, I'm Trump, but I'm still the most powerful. <laughs> That's the sovereign power. So beautiful. Cool terms, I think. Yeah, so we talked a lot about governmentality, and I think now with this new vocabulary of administrative grotesque, we can talk about bureaucratic risk. It's a nice jumping off point. Yeah, last episode we also talked about a lot of contemporary examples around how like the perception of who is a predator by their very nature, which is the thing that allows right-wing folks to demonize 
drag queen story hour as being fundamentally predatory towards children and then connect that to like the existence of transness in and of itself as being this display of sexuality for just people existing. Or, you know, we can look at in movies how, of course, heterosexuality, normative heterosexuality is always all over the place within children's narratives but then the second there is tiny little kiss in the background or whatever then that is grooming children to be a certain way so we always need to take into account the ways that the very structure of predator is formed around these ideas that then allows these right-wing politicians who you know are accused of actual pedophilia and 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 actually want to lower the age of consent and like do fucked up like like really fucked up shit um Mm -hmm. why then they're able to then turn that around and call trans people and queer people groomers just for existing yeah so the authors mobilize an extension of this liberal carceral logic that they refer to as bureaucracies of risk and let's unpack that okay (laughs) because it for me like when you mentioned it it's something I immediately agree with but also I think it's a little counterintuitive so when you first said we should talk about bureaucracies of risk like even having read it my brain just immediately thought oh like the risk benefit analysis that we do when we're negotiating our desires Mm -hmm. and it's not that (laughs) No. Yeah. No, for sure. And so they say, to speak of these bureaucracies of risk, I think this is a very helpful quote. So it betokens a generalized sexual victimology, the logic of which mirrors the operative of those bureaucracies of risk that monitor us all. So administrating power now actively presumes that at any moment, any of us is at risk, either of perpetrating sexual misconduct or becoming a victim of it so each of us must now be continuously monitored guided and if necessary corrected or protected by an apparatus of intensive oversight and intervention that is striving to become ever more efficient ever more vigilant resourceful and controlling across all domains of human experience yeah and again this is always up and against the normative model about like what are the spaces in which sexuality is quote-unquote appropriate so again as we said last time occasional or infrequent sex in the context of a long-term secure intimate emotionally rich age-appropriate and marriage-like relationship and so you know while those standards may change anything that falls outside of that is judged by the security state to be more worthy of policing and more worthy of punishment Mm -hmm. which is again the reason why you know say like marital rape is incredibly difficult to prosecute because it's like meeting all of these societal standards of when sex is quote-unquote acceptable whereas cruising or something like that regardless of any other contact and regardless of people not being harmed, it doesn't matter. The state still has a vested interest of policing that. Mm-hmm. Well, this is an example that Chloe Taylor mobilizes in her reading of Gail Rubin. And I'm almost loath to bring up this example, but it's to do with age gap relationships. So when they end up being prosecuted for when someone's a minor and someone isn't. So those moments where it's a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old or a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old, the um, parents or other people can go to the authorities and can say this is this is illegal, this is pedophilia, or parents can give their consent and say that it's okay. And so there's a disproportionate amount of queer people that are tried in cases that... it would be unthinkable for a heterosexual person to be seen as criminal. And also people of color too. Like if there's any sort of like marginalization or like feeling of like, oh, you shouldn't be with my daughter, etc. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's much more likely to be prosecuted. Whereas relationships like that that are, you know, considered acceptable, those same families may look the other way yeah. all the time. <laughs> and if it's also the up to parental consent, then it's also 
<laughs> taking away the possibility for that minor who we're so concerned about to actually have a say in what they want. And it goes the other way, too, that they might actively not want to be in that age gap relationship. And maybe the gap is even larger than those few years. <laughs> and they're being coerced by their shitty heterosexual family to be in a shitty heterosexual relationship. So, yeah. And again, that comes back to where children under the law, like, I mean, now there's at least structures around like, oh, yeah, like you're not allowed to just completely abuse your child with impunity, but they're still your property and they don't have real rights up and against you for like a really long time. And you can get away with a whole lot, bunch of shit mm -hmm. as long as it's within the family form. Yeah. So their analysis of these bureaucracies of risk and the ways in which these well-intentioned actions by victim rights movements or sometimes well-intentioned actions for people that genuinely care about the well-being of children end up just reifying the current heteropatriarchal power norms. And so they end up looking at how psychoanalysis, which they have a very rosy application of, I got it a little bit into this in my reading of Dora. <laughs> About how weird and fucked up Freud is. Um, and so their concern is that psychoanalysis ends up becoming bureaucratized. I wouldn't even, how would I even say that as a verb? <laughs> it ends up being subsumed through these normalizing bureaucratic practices. And for them, this comes to a head in attachment theory. And with this figure of John. Bowlby. Mm -hmm. And just before we completely dive into that, this also attaches to their earlier critique that we talked about of the reasons why feminism fails to talk sex, like the reason Ruben wrote Thinking Sex, and that that was kind of the real jumping off point for queer theory, was that feminism was a system of thought to understand gender-based oppression. And so Ruben looked at that and was like, okay, this can tell us some things about sex, but it is unable to think sex in the ways that we need to like be able to truly think it. And then we also talked about how then queer theory after Rubin quickly subsumed sex into neater categories and failed to really address sex in meaningful ways. But Regardless, the very structure of feminism from the get-go was always thinking about sex in terms of either like quality, like equal orgasms type thing, or in terms of sexual violations. So sex is always thought about in terms of like who is the victim and who is the perpetrator, but not sex as in this thing that people actually desire. And then we've had these growths of things like sex-positive feminism, which has evolved through Rubin and I think Jessica and um, lots yeah. of other thinkers. Yeah, but has also in many ways hidden the parts about sex that are make it particularly difficult to deal mm -hmm. with so that it can be bureaucratized in some way. Mm -hmm. I also think of some of the backlash against the yes means yes feminism or this Kafkaesque fear that I think a lot of men have of being accused of misconduct where they wouldn't have before because now we have much more nuanced understandings of what constitutes a harm. For better or for worse, I think I agree with Foucault with these things are very, very dangerous. Great. So attachment theory. Yeah, so John Bowlby. Bowlby, like the bowels of the bow, the Bowlby. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop. Yeah, tell us about attachment theory. Attachment theory. So they see it as the dominant paradigm within psychology whereby we understand childhood development and what constitutes normative childhood development and thus by extension normative appropriate sexual behaviors and the conditions that are requisite for someone developing those normative appropriate behaviors and attaching and bonding in all the right ways. And I think that they're screed. They like write in a, like it's a polemical book, of course, but their screed against mainstream psychology is a little bit funny to me, at least as much as attachment theory and, and 
all of its weird pop psychology runoffs, I think, are very bad. And as much as I really agree with all of the critiques that they levy against it, I just, it seems very interesting to be critiquing mainstream psychology from a tradition that is as fraught. So like the thing about attachment theory, I think like most queers listening today, like even if you've never read a psychology book, you probably know something about attachment theory. You know, you've seen it on infographics, like uh, one of the big poly books that's gotten really popular lately is Poly Secure. It's through the lens of attachment theory, like secure attachment. And I know a lot of us or a lot of people will talk about their attachment styles, almost like their astrology signs. Like, I'm anxiously attached. I, you know, I'm securely attached, whatever. And then so it's like, I can see how before we even get into the critique of it, it has been very soaked in by the culture in some pretty dramatic ways. And I've seen firsthand both how I think some people are able to find some amount of peace or help through understanding themselves through a certain lens, while at the same time, they're, I think, also often very reductive and and problematic in a lot of ways that we're going to get into. Mm-hmm. So the, the dangers of administrative power, the dangers of sorting. They begin their account of attachment theory by splitting it off from psychoanalytic theory. And they say, like, it's often assumed that attachment theory is, or at least began life, as a psychoanalytic theory, in part because of the, like, educational background of John Bowlby. Um, So he was trained as a psychoanalyst, and he qualified in 1937, just to give a little bit of background. But then they claim, and this is, like, I think... Like when they really start to get into their critique, despite these professional affiliations and circumstantial associations, it would be more accurate to see Balbi's attachment theory as a powerful reaction against psychoanalysis than as a development of it. A parasitic reduction of psychoanalysis from within its very institutions. So, yeah, like that's the first vicious barb. I love it. <laughs> and so much like their pulling out the possible uses of the messy, the fraught, the harmful, the perverse, non-normative, potentially violating. They're sort of utilizing that or they're seeking out the value in how those things can help us understand ourselves and understand our sexuality and they're like lingering in that hate and that gray area. They're critical of how Bowlby's attachment theory rejects this conflict. It rejects the conflict between the drives and it sees that as just as bad. And so instead of seeing the intra-psychic conflict that both causes suffering, but then is also just innate to the human condition, instead of seeing that as just part of what it is to, to be, they argue or they are critical of how Bowie considered interpsychic conflict to be and they quote the pathological result of observable failings in the caregiving relationship between mother and infant during a formulative period from around six months to six years of age with the first 12 of those months being especially sensitive to dig into that a little bit just to elaborate so like with eroticism and with how Oliver Davis and Tim Dean have elaborated hatred of sex that foundational to the structure is when we're talking about drives is that we have the ego, which is this somewhat stable thing that has projects. It has a conception of self and it creates boundaries that are porous, but are also, you know, like have some amount of stability. And for them, desire, or for Bataille, eroticism is something that threatens the stability of those boundaries, right? Because desire is something that can always overcome it. And so therefore, to desire, to have a psyche, is something that structurally causes a suffering. You know, this kind of battle between self and other, where the ego is always in some way trying to like restrain desire and put desire under control. 
And so what they're saying is that what attachment theory does is it completely dismisses the very nature of desire by saying that like, oh, this unconsciousness that Freud posits, this intrapsychic conflict, it isn't something that is inherent to the human being. It's something that is actually caused by a failure of parenting, specifically a failure of parenting usually of the mother in this very like direct, like observable way. Like, oh, your kid's fucked up. Well, we all know who did that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So. so yeah, they say, Balbi not only set an extremely exacting standard for appropriate maternal behavior, but effectively attributed all of the world's ills to bad mothering. We argue that these are fundamentally bureaucratic ideals. So the ideal of a singular way to be a good mother. If the suffering of interpsychic conflict is to be avoided, the caregiver must send only unmixed messages to the child, must convey only positive affect without ambivalence, and must be reliably available in these ways whenever needed. Such single-minded attentiveness is possible only if the mother has herself been raised similarly or has benefited from significant therapeutic intervention. So it's just like this single-minded way of being cared for or caring for someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's taking, you know, the claim that it's bureaucratizing, whereas psychoanalysis and the author's view recognizes the structure of desire as inherent to the human condition, that it's something that is unavoidable and that everyone has. What attachment theory is doing is that it's making something that can be seen and controlled. So instead of the messiness of that just being how psyche is, it's saying, no, we can look at the parents and we can find out what they're doing wrong, how they're fucking up their kids. And then we can, of course, base this on a extremely middle class, extremely white. And also, as they point out with Balbi, these very military structures, because he was a military man, to basically create this form of the ideal psychological profile, basically. And that all other failures, we can blame somebody for it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like the deficiencies of a mother. <laughs> mm-hmm. They say the utopian fantasy of bureaucratic power is, if the world could only be properly administered, then there would be no suffering. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to get into like why he chose separation, just because it's observable. Yeah. Whereas with psychoanalysis, right, like as much as we can go back and talk about how Freud and a lot of psychoanalysis have pathologized and basically said, like, no, this is actually what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. At least the very structure of psychoanalysis is saying that there is value to the inner experience, that there is something there that is worth speaking out and then being processed in some way. Whereas with attachment theory, what it does is that it's able to be entirely observable. So it makes it so that you can administer it in the same way that you would administer watching animals in a cage. Like the same way that a lot of scientists that work with different animals would look at animal behavior. Like, oh, they're doing this type of thing because this type of thing happened. And so getting rid of the need to engage with the very complicated existence of inner experience. Mm -hmm. And it also takes as given that separation is the decisive factor in delinquency. So it's just the fact that that was the one that he could most cleanly observe and make inferences from. That's the one that he chose to stick with, which is part of their critique. So not only is he not listening and not treating his subjects as like universes in themselves <laughs> but this desire to like have a regiment the way that we understand how we interact with each other is causing him to just lean on the most readily available seeable and then to draw all of these inferences the thing that's striking about it too is that it's not just that attachment to the parent is the thing that's important. It's also too much attachment is also bad. So Mm -hmm. it's not like the 
level of or the structure of attachment theory is saying that like oh the perfect mother is one that you know spends all of her time with her child and like gives unconditional love like the idea of the perfect mother is one which uh you know oliver davis and tim dean argue is based off of this almost like military structure that it's all based around this idea of the secure base, which, you know, I think all of us, when we think of attachment theory, like we still often use that language that militarizes parenting. It dramatizes the social surroundings as an environment full of threat and along the way reconceives the relationship between parent and child as a gentleman's agreement, a homosocial pact between two senior members of a ruling officer class. (laughs) (laughs) And so that like, The secure base is proximate, but it's not too close. There's this fundamental difference, which is, you know, all based off of this idea of like the British uh, middle and upper class standards of like what it is to be a, you know, appropriate functioning human. It's always the Victorians. It's always, yeah, of course. The British. This isn't surprising, but like also extremely homophobic. Like, mm-hmm. thou be likened a confirmed homosexual who achieves sexual orgasm with a partner of the same sex to a radar and predictor controlled anti aircraft gun that shoots down only friendly planes. Um, so, what seeps from the narrow frame of its wartime metaphor is not only rank homophobia, gay sex as a misfiring of one's biological equipment leading to the loss of one's friends, but a wider hatred of sex in which ejaculate is gunfire and any form of sexual behavior that does not aim at reproduction amounts to a life-threatening malfunction. Those who have opined that attachment theory is or should be open to queer desire without bothering to acknowledge the existence of such material will have to try a lot harder. So yeah, I mean, I know that I am anxiously attached, which I guess is like the child version of preoccupied attachment, according to the structure. That's an insecure attachment. I think the thing that's And that's because parents unable to consistently co-regulate with their child over involving the child in the parent's state of mind, often due to parents' own level of anxiety, stress, or unresolved trauma, or their own anxious attachment history, being responsible for a parent's well-being, overstimulation, parents who discourage autonomy. And yeah, my parents were broken up when I was like two and a half, and I was just like the people pleaser. Like, But um, they were typical in the most are but they they were never like horribly terrible but i definitely relate to the things on the anxiously attached list which i think very much reads for someone who is uh you know trying to like hears bad things about both your parents and is like and always like feels like kind of destabilized and is always just like wants everyone to be back together um mm-hmm. yeah And so then, you know, preoccupied as an adult, always being hyper aware of your relationships and um, generally like wanting more connection than like the average person, like wanting more time, Mm -hmm. committing very quickly, getting attached very quickly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you want to diagnose me real quick? Just for fun, just for funsies. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Do you want me to tell you what I've been told I am? What are you, Aurora? Tell me. I've been told that I'm avoidant. Yeah. Avoidant slash chaotic. I don't know what any of those things mean. Um, avoidant slash chaotic. Okay. Disorganized, <laughs> maybe? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. <laughs> What does that mean about me? The disorganized, fearful, avoidant attachment style. It wasn't initially classified in the original studies. Oh. <laughs> uh, some children displayed confusing, even chaotic behavior, such as running towards their parent, then immediately away from them. <laughs> up. Children with disorganized attachment style have an attachment system that seems to be hyperactivated and deactivated at the same time. Whoa. They don't display a consistent organized attachment strategy in the same way that children with a secure, anxious, or avoidant style do. Uh-huh. Instead, they seem to lack a coherent organization of which strategy to employ, often vacillating between the anxious and avoidant insecure attachment styles. Cool. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, it's most commonly associated with trauma and typically arises when a child experiences their attachment figure as scary, threatening, or dangerous. Mm. Um, okay. What happens when a caretaker is a threat? This puts the child in a paradoxical situation where their caretaker, who's supposed to be the source of their comfort and solution to their fears, is actually the source of their fear. Hmm. Um, so one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. Cool. Yeah. How do you feel about that? How do I feel about that? I mean, I know that I have mommy issues. Yeah. But I also feel like whenever I've been told that I should look at attachment theory or whenever people have brought up what they think my attachment is, I feel like it's always been either someone trying to give me advice to gain an upper hand on some kind of relationship issue, which I think mm -hmm. is a really problematic way to approach relationships, or it's someone who's trying to suggest that I'm emotionally underdeveloped <laughs> in a relationship and thus a way for them to kind of assume a degree of control. Totally. Or to suggest that my reactions or my distancing myself is neurotic or... <laughs> Definitely. Uh, unhealthy coping mechanism. So that's my experience. Definitely the pathologizing of personal conflict and relationships is a big problem. Like you can use things to see things through. But yeah, I think that they are often utilized, especially in the days of the infographic as, <laughs> as a weapon in ways yeah. that are not great. I mean, I'm, I mean, maybe again, for personal reasons, like incredibly wary of these kinds of structures, these vocabularies. Mm -hmm they end up always having super problematic origins. So I think of the Myers-Briggs personality type that for some reason is has some degree of credibility now or some degree of respectability. Which Does just, it? It's a mirage of respectability. I mean, I feel that way. I feel like it's really embarrassing when people ask what that is. But I remember as a freshman in college going to my like freshman orientation and then being like, know your personality type because it will help you unlock your potential. It's like astrology for capitalists. That's that's what I was going to say, but I think... <laughs> I'm sorry that I stole that from you. <laughs> I mean, I feel the same way. I think that psychoanalysis is astrology for... <laughs> I don't even know who to fill in that blank. But, um, but yeah, I think that these personality types end up being significantly more harmful than helpful. So I found myself really moved by their critique. And it was, it was unsurprising to me how arbitrary all of the standards that were chosen to make this into a science or to make this into a discipline in its own right. So again, the decision to observe versus to listen, the fact that the graduate student that he was working with was also working with another developmental psychiatrist and she just lifted the notion of security from the kind that he was using so both this military history but then just the fact that one person just happened to be like really comfortable in the jargon <laughs> that her former mentor was using it just ended up creating this thing that we now just take as a given and that we've kind of naturalized and that also creates its own little cottage industries of infographics and self-help seminars. I don't know. I think it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something else. Do you want to lead attachment theory into traumatology? Okay. So really quickly, I just want to make the following point about the disciplining or the, the bureaucracy or the fantasies of control in securing boundaries and borders ends up bureaucratizing the body itself. So where they wanted sexuality to wander around the body and to sort of move across thresholds and boundaries and to be open for them, this securing and this paradigm of security closes off the body and fortifies these boundaries so they say the bureaucratized body of the well-attached child is a walking set of coordinated systems ready to slot harmoniously into the social structure of a well-administrated social democracy. So what attachment theory is doing is it's just creating good citizens, mm -hmm. creating little soldiers. Okay, so leading how that turns into a critique of traumatology. 
It's interesting. My Instagram, you know, exists in this ecosystem with people who do the, you know, kind of mental health influencer stuff. And then there's also always this attempt to sell your personality and like the things you do as therapy. Like this is a big problem in like a lot of BDSM influencers that have come in who like aren't really like in leather community and are often like mostly straight, like definitely cis, who like get these huge platforms and then want to like kind of sell this very sanitized safe BDSM to mostly straight women and also like sell it as something that's like healthy, right? Like it's something that's like good for you. And sometimes it's like even therapy itself. And it's like, yeah, like, <laughs> you know, we can talk about how BDSM can be therapeutic and all these things, but it just becomes consumed by capitalism. It becomes a product to sell to people. And then also this is the same problem with to make a small tangent real quick. So, like, the history of Tinder is that, like, Grinder was the origin, which was made for gay men for, like, hookup and, like, to kind of replicate, like, cruising culture, you know, based off of, you know, being able to relate relatively quickly and, like, hook up and, like, have sex based off of, like, desire. And even then, it's, you know, distanced from maybe, you know, what a purely physical cruising would be. But still, it is a very fucking gay app. And then Tinder, which then became, you know, like one of the most biggest apps of all time, it basically was a clone of Grindr that sanitized all of the functions of Grindr so that straight women would feel safe being on it to make it like less scary, spooky. Mm. And like, you know, we can talk about how that's partially because the straight dating scene is really awful and like straight men can be really scary but also part of that is gentrification of queerness for the consumption of cis heteronormativity and i think you can really see a lot of that happening with a lot of like leather culture right now in parts of the internet you know like it's an aesthetic thing and it's something that they like want to be like vaguely associated with to be cool. Same thing is true for like sex work aesthetics, right? Mm -hmm. Like want the clout, but like not any of the actual life and not any of the commitments, let alone political commitments. Yeah. So that's how I feel about the influencer class. Mm -hmm. I try really hard not to be, you know, the infographic industrial complex. Mm -hmm. But, you know. No, I worry about that a lot given my interests in trauma i worry about the temptation to be really navel gazy or to want to project my own experience onto the world or to want to settle into the uniqueness of my wounded experience as the delicate little flower that i am and i do think that that is narcissistic i know that you've critiqued me for overusing that word when i apply it to myself but there's <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to praise this. Um, given how these words are tools, I think that there's an ethical impetus to use them correctly or or given that they're tools without instructions, <laughs> they're diagnostic tools or they're tools to begin to have conversations, conversations which there's no prescriptive form that we can universalize or that we can understand them as taking every time like there's they're risky and they're they're tricky and they're dangerous and there's all this possibility of backfire i don't know i care a lot about this vocabulary i guess that's what i have to say <laughs> um yeah that makes sense and so i think a lot of my work is just to understand this vocabulary like the history of it and to look at trends and how we use it and to try to learn from that it's really hard sometimes i think to ride that line between like our position as we've articulated it across the show is that you know language is contextual and it exists in time and place but also one of the things that happens with language is that once it enters a certain like mainstream category it gets like watered down and overused to the point that like you have no idea what the fuck people are saying when they use it anymore 
you know, like, mm-hmm. and es- especially when it becomes something that is not seen as like taboo. Like, I think feminism was a lot more of a useful word when it still carried more stigma with it, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But now that every female celebrity and even a lot of male celebrities <laughs> are, you know, feminists or whatever, like, there's really no way to know what the fuck someone means when they call themselves a feminist. It's just, it's mm-hmm. not a hugely useful word and I think we can see that meaning being taken away when it comes to like so many terms in psychology and and also in theory like if it becomes big enough it very quickly is like what the fuck are people saying like what what are people talking about then it becomes a push and pull between like oh the origin is this and therefore it only means this Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah we do need to know the context of the origin but also words can change but the problem is, is that if it changes into nothing. You also don't want to gatekeep knowledge production. Totally. So especially when you're trying to shed light on the experience of marginalized people or like, especially with trauma. And this is Judith Herman's argument in, within the very book that they're critiquing. So their whole critique of trauma center, centers around Judith Herman's work. And so one of her main arguments is that the history of trauma is always fraught and it's difficult to tell a story about the field itself because it's so politically contingent. So it arises out of a political need or a moment of advocacy, but then it gets snuffed out. So we want people to be able to speak to the unspeakable and to shed light on their experience, but then the term ends up like meaning nothing when I am saying like I'm being traumatized by the banal, but then, and then by the extreme, I should probably cut that, but no, no, no. Um, Be traumatized by the banal. Yeah. Traumatized by the banal. Like no, the banal becomes super traumatizing. Let's switch gears. The reason why they give the history of attachment theory the way that they do is because it builds the foundation with which they critique traumatology. And so they critique the ways in which trauma functions to instill a hatred of sex. And a lot of the work that they do in the account of attachment theory that they give is troubling its origins. So showing how it's arbitrary, showing that it actually might be less than scientifically rigorous, showing that it is informed by these patriarchal, homophobic militaristic liberal ideologies and showing also that the founder he created the particular economy within which it flourished so he leaned on darwin and notions of predators for example to show that we're always in fear of the possibility of us being violated or we're always have to worry about our attachment or our security being threatened, so we're ever vigilant and we're ever negotiating these different attachment forms. He just created that need. So they're really showing the contingency, the arbitrariness of it. And from this history, they launch into an account of the relationship between traumatology and governance, and then also the popularization of traumatology like in our society or as a vocabulary with which to understand ourselves and each other and again why this is harmful again because they end up troubling those terms i feel weird using normative adjectives to describe the way that they do their work they show how it closes us off to experiences where we perhaps ought to be open to or it ends up inscribing values that might not have been there otherwise that as a result will lead us to become traumatized where we might not have otherwise experienced the event as traumatic. So yeah, they're just really worried about traumatology as being this like self-enclosed reifying structure. Mm-hmm. Is that a helpful uh, launching point? Okay. I think that's fantastic. And so for them, the mainstreamness of Bobby's theory and this primacy of security and this militaristic construction of a secure base that we must always defend led to this 
particular kind of traumatology that they see as a weaponized form of attachment theory. Mm-hmm. And so this branches from the work of psychiatrist Judith Herman, who published a seminal work in trauma studies in 1992 called Trauma and Recovery. Before then, she had published some underground works on incest, and she had worked as a clinician. So Trauma and Recovery is a result of about two decades of research and clinical experience. So just to give a little bit of background of where this book comes from, just given all of the pseudoscience (laughs) that one risks running into with this kind of work. And so they read Judith Herman as grounding trauma within attachment theory. So I have a a bit of a long quote. Quoting Herman, they say, the sense of safety in the world or basic trust is acquired in the earliest life and the relationship with the first caretaker. Originating with life itself, the sense of trust sustains a person throughout the life cycle. It forms the basis of all systems of relationship and faith. The original experience of care makes it possible for human beings to envision a world in which they belong, a world hospitable to human life, Basic trust is the foundation of belief in the continuity of life, the order of nature, and the transcendent order of the divine. So they say that Herman's whole project is rooted in this primacy of trust in the basic first attachments that people form, and she's wary of the shattering that occurs as a result of traumatic events. And so they see this traumatological turn, as they call it, as a radicalization of four very problematic aspects of attachment theory. So the first is a commitment to single-mindedness at the expense of shattering or at the expense of multiplicity of personality or identity. So trauma seeks to keep people whole or make people whole again or to diagnose and pathologize things like multiple personality, dissociative identity. And then there's also a continued commitment to attachment types and those being the basis upon which all other identities can be traced or linked and the basis by which we can give a causal account of one's behavior. They also critique what they call a commitment to the lifelong positive effects of good parenting and the negative effects of trauma so that there's a correct kind of childhood, a correct way of raising a child, and a correct way to recover or process one's childhood. And then finally, they are concerned with a... (laughs) an impetus to administer appropriate sexuality, and then also this conflation of security with safety Mm -hmm. and positive development. That administration then almost inevitably progresses into policing. Absolutely. They're really wary of what they read as Herman's tendency to want to find abuse everywhere and what turned into like literal witch hunts during the satanic panic in the United States to just find sexual abuse everywhere. So you have what are, again, good intentions. So Judith Herman was trying to give voice to what she says is the unspeakable. Like That's how she understands her project. So she's trying to offer a resource for therapeutic interventions and tr- trying to condense two decades of clinical experience into something that she can share with others so that she could start a conversation so she could trouble what she saw as silencing trends within therapeutic practices, also within society at large and a negative response against the traumatized. But for them, they see it as having turned into an excuse to do more policing and then ultimately something that creates more trauma. Mm-hmm. So like in the case of satanic, you know, ritual abuse, the idea that the society can become so obsessed with certain types of images and narratives and then prescribe that and basically coerce and coach without even knowing it. Mm-hmm. And these like otherwise well-meaning people into or um, 
coach their kids into like telling these horrific stories is a really horrifying thing. And that it, it also came out of a very real need, like the idea that child abuse was something that was rampant, wasn't something that people were concerned about or people were really thinking about, that like child abuse is something that happens. And so then because of that, this fear and this like moral panic of like this need to produce harm and like oh the harm can't come from these the family yeah the harm can't come from just like these very base systems that we actually hold sacred because that would be you know too hard to confront like how these like very normal very banal structures create evil or whatever or you know what we could call evil instead we have to create these people who are like literally blood sacrificing children to like the devil and like doing the most terrific things imaginable. And so, yeah, I, I think that that example is the centerpiece to then understand the rest of the critique of traumatology. Okay. So in the feminist vigilance to identify harms that had previously been unspeakable or that we weren't able to attend to. So it was a huge political and social effort for us to recognize marital rape as a phenomenon. It was a huge political and social effort for us to recognize PTSD actually in veterans as a important social phenomena. And then, as you mentioned, like it was also like a lot of people had to put a lot of effort and there's a lot of consciousness raising that went into just recognizing child abuse. So the battering of children was something that doctors had to work really hard to make visible and to attend to protecting children from their parents because parents were seen as the sovereign of their family and like it's all super rooted in politics and in forming language to address social problems and of that language always needing to evolve and so yeah in in the desire to speak truth to power they are really critical. You have this fervent desire to like see abuse everywhere, which, as you mentioned, resulted in things like the satanic panic or resulted in therapists then looking for any excuse to find an abuse or a case of ab abuse. And so this turned into a phenomenon that's referred to as the memory wars. So the extent to which therapists and hypnotists are implanting memories of abuse into their patients because they're well-intentioned on one hand and then also for personal prestige on the other hand. Yeah. And this also results in an identity of victimhood, of victimization, mm -hmm. where you're identifying with a really clinical, like universalizable, clean-cut vocabulary for understanding what is super subjective and then what also might necessarily evade description or evade the ability to communicate. And in that sense, it produces a very conservative good and evil, like these are the bad guys, these are the good guys. And then the problem with breaking everyone up into you're either a abuser slash predator or you're a survivor slash victim, you know, like if mm -hmm. then that necessitates the creation of both of those categories where they wouldn't necessarily be. And so simplifying social reality into the one-dimensional form favored by administering power and the melodramatic play of opposites, ever beloved by the news media, the foundational impropriety of sex is covered over as traumatological dogma demands of all of us a constant vigilance over our thoughts, feelings, and actions, a constant neurotic self-interrogation about whether we may inadvertently have been abusive or coercive. It also encourages us mm -hmm. to view other people with similar suspicion and to laud the public exhibition of such soul-searching as in penitential rituals of the early and medieval church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, witch hunting. Yeah, and so, like, if we're looking for abuse everywhere and then now we're finding it because we are broadening our vocabulary to, like, make it ever more expansive, to recode ever more benign encounters... So encounters that are unpleasurable or annoying or undesirable for any number of reasons, which is a sticky kind of thing to say, because one still, as a feminist, it's hard not to feel alongside McKinnon, I guess, to have a working understanding of violence or violation of as, well, if that's what that person experienced, then that's what that is. But if you have these people in positions of power, so these 
traumatologists recoding one's experience because they're armed with the vocabulary of attachment theory telling you that actually like that discomfort or your inability to form what we believe are the right kind of relationships is actually because you were abused like something that you would have just seen as you growing up or something that they're recoding and that is really actually disempowering. Mm-hmm. So again, the vocabulary is super important to so many people and I am a huge advocate of it. The issue is when it goes too far and what that means for it to go too far. Well, it's like I've had people come into my DMs telling me I've been abused, right? Like yeah. when I have not, because that is not my experience, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, in, in, in that specific experience. And yeah, and that idea is incredibly messy that the idea that you cannot easily administer and be like these are the things that are wrong these are the things that are bad that like harm is a much more slippy or a much slippier slippery (laughs) sorry (laughs) that harm is a much more slippery concept that's really difficult I think with like therapy you know now we have I think it's really popular to be like, oh, you should just go to therapy and be like, oh, if only men went to therapy or whatever. But like, I think the thing that we all need to come to terms with is that like, yes, like therapy was incredibly important to me. Like a good therapist can be really, really important and can help you process a lot of really important stuff. But I think probably all of us know someone that's become a little bit of a supervillain through therapy. (laughs) And so, you know, that also means like sometimes abusers, uh, like people who do commit a lot of harm and, and like aren't particularly accountable to their actions, who learn the language of therapy as a way to constantly get around harm. And it's hard to basically say that like, oh, well, there is no silver bullet. Like if every single person went to therapy, we would not have the utopia that we also desperately want. Mm -hmm. It's hard. I think it's also problematic that traumatology, as they understand it, as rooted in normalizing forms of attachment or the failure to attach, ends up having a monopoly on the ways in which we understand ourselves and the ways in which we understand sex and harm and pleasure Mm -hmm. and that that's a big problem with it it's creating overly expansive notions of abuse it's also watering down the vocabulary so abuse then means very little or the vocabulary you have to heal with suddenly means a lot less Mm -hmm. and to go back to you know the example from last episode, like I think it's extremely telling that when someone detransitions, like the very rare time someone detransitions and has some form of like regret or whatever, and then makes a huge narrative about it, there is like this huge outflowing of sympathy around like, oh, like irreversible damage, all of these horrible things. But it's like they had consent to be able to do those things. Like the only way you can get access to medication is through like a process and is of like at least some level of self-advocacy. Whereas with trans kids all the time are denied puberty blockers and then go through the trauma of forced puberty, which mm-hmm. it, it's a really fucked up thing. And the fact that we value one of those things over the other and that we see one of those things as trauma, the thing that someone chose, the thing that like someone actually had autonomy over versus the other thing where someone had no autonomy was actually being denied autonomy, I think tells us a lot about how trauma is transcribed. Oh, yeah. That trauma is transcribed around things that society does not, is more likely to be transcribed around things that society does not value and has a very difficult time transcribing it to things that the society is like, eh. You know, Yeah. So they say the co-curation of victimized identity by traumatologists may help real victims of abuse, yet such astonishing rates of business growth have been achieved only by tactically but very considerably widening the scope of the category of abuse and doing so with complete indifference to the collateral consequences. So they underline these three related senses in which the techniques employed by traumatologists are totalizing. 
So the first is the diagnosis of traumatic history, which encompasses every aspect of a person's life. The claim that traumatology subsumes and surpasses every other kind of therapy. So again, it's monopoly on therapy, on cure, probably a very idealized kind of cure. And then also, which they link to the notion that traumatic suffering as defined like within this very narrow scope is more serious and significant than other forms of suffering. So that makes invisible other kinds of harms or ways of being. And then finally, that the traumatological clinic attaches the validating therapist to the grateful patient in a dyad of sustenance and mutual suggestibility that in turn binds both to the very structure. So just a closed structure that then creates this global community of, of victims. So um. this quote is useful. Sex is rendered harmless under neoliberalism by annexing it to identity with the excess coded as always potentially injurious to others and specifically sexual pleasure seen as extracted at others' expense. Identity is one of the most powerful prophylactics through which sex is made safe. So again, that like by subsuming sex into identity, they're able to, you know, create this very small group of exceptions in which sex is acceptable and then police and control all of the others and create a bureaucracy of risk around it. And then uh, to continue mm -hmm. the quote, we have argued to the contrary that sex is not harmless. It violates propriety and the appropriate just as its excessive pleasures threaten the coherence of human egos and thereby challenge identity. Sexual pleasure is both longed for and hated for because it disrupts, disorders, renders deplorable and shatters our dignity. But if sex is not harmless, does it necessarily follow that liberal governance, carceral feminists, along with traumatologists in the sciences, are right to regard all sex as potentially abusive? Does the manner in which sex is not harmless justify the proliferating sex bureaucracies and their constant vigilance for actionable instances of sexual harm? So the way in which those bureaucracies of harm work and by subsuming sex into a more manageable thing, that means that it's subsuming them into these much easier to control and police structures that have all of the, you know, prejudices and like systems of oppression that are in larger society and that is reflected in how they are policed and punished. Mm -hmm. Traumatology begets more traumatology. Mm -hmm. Traumatology teaches hatred of democracy by suggesting that the human capacity to abuse others legitimates the proliferation of bureaucracies of risk to monitor all of us and the spread of protocols of obedience so that we know to handle the victimized appropriately. Traumatology teaches hatred of sex by wielding, indeed proliferating, the extreme category of abuse. By doing so, it not only targets abuse, but disciplines the much wider field of benign sexual inappropriateness and sex in general in a way that seeks to secure appropriate sexual behavior. In other words, occasional or infrequent sex in the context of long-term, secure, intimate, emotionally rich, age-appropriate, and marriage-like relationships. Fabulous. And that's our uh, coverage of Hatred of Sex. We did it. <laughs> All right. Time for confessions. Number one, I'm only attracted to people much older than me. <laughs> that's, that's great. I love that. Cool. Or, yeah. yeah live your best life yeah we're not about to police your desires yeah i don't think i've ever um well yeah i think i've dated like someone younger than me like one time like a couple years younger than me and it was like a bad time so actually like almost everyone i've ever dated has been anywhere from like a few months older to me to like a decade older than me so you know hmm. i'm i'm in the same boat <laughs> confession number two Sometimes my intense craving for submission makes me a little out of my mind. Nice. Yeah, nice. I mean, yeah, I, I feel that all the time. All the time. <laughs> Relatable. Hashtag. Um, 
I have mommy issues, and now I want to fuck everyone's mom. Whoa. What kind of attachment style do you think this person has? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It could be That's, any of them so except for secure. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm so happy for this person. This is this yeah. is great. I love I I yeah. love that for you. Um, I hope yeah. I hope you find success. Yeah, I hope so too. I once lost six marbles of my cunt, and once recovered, they became prized sacred objects. Reminds me of the. Um, the rosary that's now in the possession of the magpie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or the story of the eye. <laughs> the bull <laughs> testicles. The bull testicles. Mm-hmm. Delightful. We, we, we could always use more sacred objects. I'm, I'm glad they're going through that ritual. Next one. I pandered to cis girls' sexual expectations as a trans girl for years. Yeah, that sucks. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, I think that's very normal because, you know, you're like, oh, someone's attracted to me, I guess. I have to, like, kowtow to them. But I hope this seems like past tense. So I, I love I love that for you. I hope you're living your best, you know, having whatever type of sex you enjoy having. Yeah, me too. Okay. I love this one. I drink water straight from my girlfriend's mouth and I still shiver every time I think about it. Yeah. Like <laughs> we've said before in this podcast, spit in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, <laughs> um, that sounds that sounds lovely. I have certainly done this many times. I've, I've had a scene where I could only drink water when it was that way. So, um, yeah, amazing. it's uh, hydration is important. And, um, mm-hmm. and so is, uh, hot things like drinking from your girlfriend's mouth. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. So I think that is it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. This is our last episode where we covered Oliver Davis and Tim Dean's hatred of sex. And I think it served as a really fantastic vehicle for us to discuss a lot of things that we've wanted to discuss for a long time. And it's a really invigorating book. I recommend it. Yeah. And we're going to move on to something different for next time. And Mm -hmm. if you would like to help keep this show chugging along, please sign up at www.patreon.com slash drunk church that's really what helps this show keep going keeps it ad free keeps it you know in your Mm -hmm. lovely ears which is you know the goal and uh i hope you can all if you have stuff to to tell us and like reach out uh tell us stuff rate us uh comment you know you can like rate us on like the apps or whatever you know wherever you listen do that don't slide into our DMs and diagnose us, please. But <laughs> yeah, don't don't diagnose us. <laughs> but have dialogue with us. Have a democratic conversation as the authors envisioned was made possible by the kind of psychoanalytic paradigm that Freud created. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. The Freud of their dreams, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> analyze me daddy yeah that's right, that's right yeah. <laughs> don't diagnose me but analyze me mm-hmm. i'm always down to be analyzed a little bit bless you for being an angel just when it seemed that heaven was not for me For building a new dream Just when my old dream Crumbled so helplessly 